Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives we're consumed by all the what if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun if you're like us then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass or play call each week on alternate routes we'll take a flashpoint in sports break down what actually happened then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused follow alternate routes on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus on this week's episode of Unwritten. You gotta be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. Flag along drive! There it is! Number 500 for Michael Jack Smith! Sure as God made green apples, someday the Chicago Cubs are gonna be in the World Series. Hello and welcome to Unwritten from Odyssey and MLB. We're going behind baseball's secret rules. My name is Ron Darling. With me is Jimmy Rollins. Hall of Fame broadcaster Bob Costas will join us a little later. Jimmy, if I told you in the middle of your great career with the Phillies that someday you were going to be a media personality in the booth, in a pre- and post-game production, what would you have said to me? That is highly doubtful, Ron. <laughs> 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 highly doubtful. Uh, you know, as, as a player, you have a different view on the person in the booth, uh, the person calling a game in every capacity. And do you have the IQ for it? Yes, you're, you're, you're the expert. You played the game, you know the ins and outs, why plays are made, why they aren't, why managers make moves, whether you understand them or not. Uh, but that was on the field. And because we're the experts on the field, there's no need for me to listen to the guy in a booth. But now that I'm here, I hope to bring a little bit of what I've learned on a field uh, and also more so what I can remember and understanding why when you're in a booth, you do certain things and you don't do certain things and to not be biased either way, uh, whether you're the, the local guy or doing a national to keep it fair. But understanding that the viewer and the player, they're listening and they're, they're intelligent. They're going to have their opinions, but just be true. Don't be mean, call it for what it is. And obviously I'm here now and, <laughs> and the answer was no, but I'm here now. And I, and I hope to bring some of that, what I've learned and some of my honesty and my, my POVs uh, to what's happening. No, there's a few uh, unwritten rules. When I think about broadcasting. As a broadcaster, you don't make yourself the story. 
Mm -hmm. Don't call out your broadcast partner on the air. You don't want to put him in a bad place. Mm -hmm. And call it as you see it. Uh, if a player is wrong, ump is wrong, you hopefully can find the language to um, kind of say why uh, they were wrong or what they did. I always find the toughest for a player who just exited the field was to be critical of players that he played against. Do you find that? Oh, for sure. Um, and, and I think it takes time to get comfortable in your own skin to make those hard calls. Uh, a lot of times they're your friends, former teammates, and, and as we know, it doesn't just happen, happen on a the field. These are people that you spent time with, you know, their wives, uh, their wife, their children, all those things. But yet and still, your job is to call it as you see it. And I remember getting into the booth with TBS and the first few years, you know, Chef and Pedro, who've been out the game for a while, they're going at it. And I'm on the other side, eyes big as two softballs. Like, how can you say this? And, right. you know, I wasn't all the way done. I'm like, I might have to be in a clubhouse with some of these guys next year. I didn't say anything. I mean, just sat there, listen. And you know, at this time, Casey Sterner threw it to me. And I just try to be as neutral as I can to try to kill it. But those two on the other side having heated discussions on this guy and this guy sucks. I'm like, bro, I can't say that. First of all, that's my homeboy. We just won World Series together. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't, I can't do stuff like that. But as I've gotten further and further away, I have found my foot and I have found my voice to be able to, you know, say the harder things. And I think part of it is, one, I don't have to go into those clubhouses. Uh, two, hopefully my resume on the field gives me the platform to say what needs to be said as long as I'm not critical and I'm fair. You know, Los Angeles has been Scully. Philadelphia has Harry Callis. Uh, what did he mean to you? Uh, he was everything. He called my first hit. And I remember, uh, you know, like it was yesterday. I, I, I've watched the clip probably a thousand times. Jimmy Rollins is going to get his first major league hit. One hopping off the fence. Notice him saying the ball gets down in the corner. Watch J-Roll fly. Watch him fly. It's going to be a triple. Rollins heading for third. Head first slide. He's there with a triple. First big league hit. And it's just like, man, like, like. You know, after his passing, you know, you, you don't re, you don't really think about how much a person means to you because they're there all the time. You hear it all the time. It's just a part of your life. And then when he passed, it took me a while to go back. I'm like, you know what? I, I haven't heard his voice in a while. And it hit me. And I went back and I watched it and tears just came to my eyes like, man, this this dude meant more than I really thought he did because I'm playing. You know, I'm on the back of the airplane. I'm sitting two rows in front of him. We're having conversations. When I, you know, called the Phillies uh, fans front runners, you know, might get some flack for this, but you know, they're front runners. Uh -huh. You know, when, when, when you're doing good, they're on your side. Came over to me, J-Roll, J-Roll, why'd you say it? Just why? <laughs> you know, it's like, but Harry, you know, it's like you want to stand on your rock and it was like, but this is Harry. And he's, yeah. you know, and you know, his passion, he was speaking, you know, with his heart. And it's like, Harry, I just, that's just how I felt, you know, because I don't want to be disrespectful to him. And it's like, man, I almost kind of felt like I disrespected him in saying that. But um, like I said, he meant everything to me. I loved hearing his voice. I'm glad he had a chance to call our World Series win, which he didn't get a chance in 1980. And um, he, was, he was, like I say, he called my first hit. And it's something I'll never get out of my head. I can remember like it was yesterday. Oh, man. I, I used to... Uh... Love when I was playing, I would get around the cage and it would be uh, Whitey, uh, Richie Ashburn, 
and also Harry Callis, and they would be there. Ashburn asked for the pizzas. Oh, pizzas, <laughs> funky looking uh, sport coats, uh, the white patent leather shoes. Yeah. And they'd come over and they loved ball players, loved just talking, mm-hmm. not only with the Phillies, but also the opposition. They're pretty cool. I was thinking on your pre and post-game stuff that you do now, what was the hardest thing for you to work on to like perfect your craft? For me, I would have to say it was the timing of everything. Feeling like in the beginning, I had to rush to get my point out. Uh, there's only so much airspace per segment. And as you move on, you know, you lose an opportunity to talk about sometimes what you wanted to say. And when you have Pedro on one side, who's a Hall of Famer, um, you have Sheffield on the other side, who I feel is should be a Hall of Famer. And then you have me, the new guy on the block. They have a rhythm. They've been there. They they know each other. They they battle each other um, on the field. I have to get to have my battles with Pedro, but never in a dramatic sense that those who had. So as they would go at it and it came to me and the producers in your ear and it's like two minutes. I want to say everything I want to say, but I still want to be respectful of giving them an opportunity to 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 respond or, or say something also. Um, so for me, that was very difficult and also feeling like I had something um, to say that people would listen to and would, and would grasp, uh, not try to be a teacher, not try to be an educator, but more so like if we were in a clubhouse and you heard us talking, this is the conversation you would yeah. hear. But without giving away too much, because it's still, you know, the clubhouse is a special place. It's it's home and you you can't talk about a lot of things that happen in the clubhouse and they, they stay in the clubhouse. But just to give the listener or the viewer some insight of what that might be like. But um, more than anything, it was for sure the speed of everything feeling like, how do I slow myself down? How do I not talk so fast? Because when I get excited, I talk very fast <laughs> and learning how not to do that and listening to guys. Uh, Bob Costas, um, Harry Callis, remembering how they would do it, Tim McCarver, how they would seem to slow everything down and let the story develop. You know, it's funny is uh, early in my career at Turner, uh, I think in the pre and post, they had Frank Thomas, amazing guy, uh, Cal Ripken. It's, I think it's one other, but they were new to TV. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a series that ended early. Tim Kiley, who you know, the producer, yep. crazy producer. Great, great guy too. Great guy. So he calls me in and says, hey, listen, I want you to do the pre and post game, but I want you to bring some energy. I mean, these guys know their business, but they're kind of quiet guys. You know? mm-hmm. So I came on and uh, the Bernie Johnson asked me the first question. I gave like ton of energy, right? We go to the break. I don't know if it was Frank or Cal, but they said to me, said, man, you got a lot of energy, don't you? I said, this is live <laughs> TV, brother. You got to bring some energy. And I'm honestly not like that in person, like away from this Chrome, away from the podcast. People mm-hmm. know me well. I don't say a word. Like my family thinks it's the biggest thing that I make a living on TV because I don't say a word at home. They just think it's the, the funniest thing they've ever, ever heard. But um, that's one of the things you have to do also. You have to bring a lot of energy. Yes, you do. And and sometimes, you know, when, as you as you come on, especially as the show's getting late, a long game, you do have to pick yourself up because the fan, especially if they're t- well, especially one team's going to win. 
their team, the team that just won, they want that. They want to be excited. They want you to be just excited about the game, not necessarily the outcome where, you know, you have to be neutral and who wins, but about the game and what transpired in the game. And every once in a while, you know, you have to drink a cup of coffee or some tea. <laughs> and when those lights come on, you turn on. And, and that is for sure. There are definitely times where I've caught myself the first 30 seconds just kind of dragging an energy like, whoa, what are you doing? As you said, people are watching. This is live TV. You have to bring it. I think it helps. It helps a whole lot. Last year was the first year we had been on the road since 2016 mm. with the pre and post. And that brought the energy that Dodgers and Brave series in L.A. being out in those stands. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I miss that so much. I, I like the studios controlled environment. And, you know, we get to come up with cool things to do. But there's nothing like feeling the energy of a ballpark and the fans and being able, being able to have that real life interaction uh, with the people. But as you said, when it's live TV and it's just you in a studio or you in a booth, you have to bring it. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Passion drive and patience what brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers roof racks exhaust kits led headlights and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has got you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Well, on Unwritten, we're so lucky to have uh, Bob Costas join Jimmy and I, Jimmy Rollins and Ron Darling. And Bob, thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be with you guys on the air. Sometimes off the air, we're together, but great to be with you on the air. Hey, Bob, I was just wondering, you know, we do the show on the Unwritten Rules. Why in baseball does that seem more important than other sports? I think it's because of the long history of the game and certain protocols that are in place, 
I can't think of any specific um, aspect in the NBA or the NFL that would align with that. Hockey has unwritten rules, though. For example, if there's a fight and it's a real benches clearing fight, the goalies have to fight each other. The goalie cannot punch the winner. They have to fight each other. I used to do minor league <laughs> hockey. That's where I, the first thing I was ever paid for was 30 bucks a game to do games in the old Eastern Hockey League, which is the slap shot league. And not that those protocols were so perfectly adhered to that when the bench is empty, the coaches in their sport coats would go slipping and sliding in street shoes out to meet each other in the middle of the ice and start slugging each other. And at one point there was a riot in Johnstown, I'm doing the games for the Syracuse Blazers and the bus driver, the guy who drove us seven hours from Syracuse to Johnstown is looking for somebody, some rough equivalent that he can fight in Johnstown. And I walked into the Johnstown broadcast booth. I forget what the hell that guy's name was. Does this mean that I'd have to fight you? Cause I'll just forfeit right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that, that's amazing. Like to know that there's an assignment for you in hockey, yeah. if you get into a fight and in baseball. There is no assignment. It was to get to the closest guy next to you. If you're my size, and I, obviously I'm looking for the smallest guy on the team, just kind of hug and stuff. But it's it's so funny that managers fight managers, head coaches fight head coaches. The goalies go to each other. The guys right. on the ice, you know, when they get down, it's kind of like, hey, we have to find somebody. I wonder how that applies to the NBA. How, how you know, it's, it's a lot of shoving matches there. Rarely ever punches thrown but it's usually it's usually guys who are guarding each other uh whether mm. they actually you know forward could guard michael jordan in a certain circumstance and who knows what lebron's actual position is at any given moment because he's so versatile but usually it happens because guys are in each other's faces trash talking bumping you know that kind of stuff there used to be a lot of that stuff less so now because the penalties have been codified but when a superior center Sometimes the only way to try to neutralize a superior center was to beat him down the floor and keep him from getting his position, keep Kareem from getting to the side of the block where he wanted to be to take the sky hook, that kind of thing, which meant you're pushing him around. You're an inferior player. You're pushing him around. And then eventually, you know, the fuse burns down and, and a fight starts. <laughs> hey, Bob, what do you think about uh, regional versus national broadcasts? I think of Hawk Harrelson, who I used to watch mm -hmm. as a kid, uh, with his golf, uh, gloves out of his back pocket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're right. And then he became the Chicago announcer and he, he symbolizes what people sometimes call a Homer. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's true, but, uh, put it on the board. Yeah. The whole thing. Mm -hmm. That ball hit deep. Way back. Wells at the ball looks up. You can put it on the board. I was just wondering what you think about, um, criticism, uh, from the booth. Well, I think most fans, and I don't blame them for this. They're just trying to enjoy the game, whether at the ballpark or on the air. Most fans don't appreciate the distinction between a network broadcast where the audience is made up of people rooting for either team, or maybe not rooting really for either team, but they just want to see a good game, which is especially true in the postseason. So. You'll have fans saying, if you look at the comment sections, not just, I prefer my local guy, but my local guy is 10 times better than the network guy, <laughs> no matter how good the network guy is, because he gets more excited when my team does something. And fans also don't 
understand the difference between on the road or at home. Mm. The announcer, a network announcer included, your voice naturally, you don't think about it, it naturally rises when you have to get above the crowd. If the road team hits a home run and the crowd is silent and it might as well be the 18th green at Augusta, then it's kind of weird to be raising your voice that much. So your job is kind of to reflect what's going on around you. And that's why I think with the present technology, what they ought to be able to do in the postseason, as long as you could include the local ratings with the network ratings so they could sell the advertising off of it. Let's say the Dodgers play the Yankees in the World Series. Mm. You should be able to use the network fee. You play all their commercials. But if you want to listen to Michael Kay, or you want to listen to Joe Davis, so well, I guess Joe would be doing it on for Fox. Right. That's a bad example. But you want to listen to whomever. You want to listen to your local guy. Let's say the Giants are in. You want to listen to John Miller. You want to listen to Kruko and Kuiper. You should be able to. Just watch the same commercials. Let Fox count the rating, including San Francisco and whoever they're playing. And, and then you can have your choice. It's sort of a version of the Manning cast, which ESPN is now doing in baseball with Michael K and A-Rod. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a way around it. You want your local guys? God bless you. Have them. Wow. I mean, that, that, that pretty much solves that right there because I, I, I agree I, as a player, I love the Homer. I mean, I want my guy promoting my sure. team, saying all the good things about us. And as a fan, if I'm listening and as players, we do go upstairs and listen because we don't like when something happens and it's like, wow, you're supposed to be our guy. You're talking about our team. How do yeah. we get sales? How do we get sales? How do we you know, have the fans continue to believe in our, our product. If you're bashing us, that's not cool. So, um, at, I love Hawk Harrelson, you know, put on a board. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, I played in Chicago for a short time, but I love that call because you knew immediately that meant the white Sox did something. Well, I looked forward to it uh, in those games, mm -hmm. you know, having Harry Callis, um, who was, who was very fair, but he was definitely a Philly guy in this, you know, silky voice. You love to hear him call a triple or home run, you know, deep fly ball. Or, you, you love those things and you need that. Could it be? Could it be? It is out of here. Number 400 for Jim Tobey. That's what your team sounds like. So that's the way it should be. If that's the way you want it to be, but a sophisticated fan would appreciate the difference between a network broadcast and a local broadcast and what the proper approach is for the network guy. An example of this 1986 world series, one of the best world series ever, Red Sox and Mets. And during one of the games, uh, the NBC switchboard, this is before there was Twitter and everything else. So people want to lodge a complaint they had to actually write a letter or make a phone call. And the NBC switchboard on a Saturday night logged 1,800 calls of complaint about Ben Scully and Joe Garagiola. You got a complaint about Ben Scully? You think wow. you're really, you really got an accurate view of this? And about 1,000 of them came from New York and about 800 came from Boston. And I think the difference was accounted for by the fact that even though Boston's a big city, New York is a bigger city. So there's more Met fans in total watching than Red Sox fans. And this is something every network announcer would tell you, Jim Nance, Al Michaels, Joe Buck, whoever you want to talk about the people watching who are rooting for their team. They always think the network announcer is against their teams. People <laughs> watching the exact same broadcast, Mets fans, he's not being fan of the fair to the Mets. Red Sox fans hearing the same words, not being fair to the Red Sox. It's you who's nuts, Mr. Fan. You're the one who's part of it. 
You're the one who's who's not objective. <laughs> you know what I'm rooting for? And this everyone will tell you the same thing. I'm rooting for the most dramatic outcome. I want the game to be close or the series to be close. I don't really care so much who wins, but I just want it. I don't want it to be a sweep. I don't want it to be eight to nothing in the, in the fourth inning. I want it to be interesting. I tell people this all the time. I'm rooting for game seven. That's what I yes. root for uh, when I'm doing a national broadcast. What What happens when occasionally the announcer becomes part of the story? I remember after the Mets lost to the Dodgers, you became, you know, mm -hmm. engrossed in a story with Tommy Lasorda and the Dodgers yeah. where you said, hey, they might have one of the weakest lineups in the history of the game. Yo, you had it exactly right, Ron. And there are still people, you know, 30 plus years later who think I said the Dodgers are the worst team in World Series history. Well, I know a bit about baseball history, and this was the circumstance. It was game four. The Dodgers were up two games to one. Now, Mike Marshall gets hurt midway through the series. Gibson's already hobbling. His only at-bat in the series was the one that had the biggest impact, the ninth inning home run of Dennis Eckersley to win game one. And then you knew, I thought before game one, if they can steal this, they got a good chance to win the series because Hershey's is going to pitch game two. Mm. He's going to come back in game five. Lasorda would probably use him in some capacity on two days rest if there is a game seven. So that game one was really pivotal. All right, so now Marshall's out and Gibson's out and the entire lineup looks like a B game in spring training. They're either, you know, substitute guys <laughs> or guys like Rick Dempsey and Alfredo Griffin at the back ends of their careers. It's Dave Anderson, it's Franklin Stubbs, it's John Shelby. That's what their lineup is. Um, and the whole lineup doesn't have as many home runs as either McGuire or Canseco mm -hmm. individually. So I said, you look at this lineup and pitching aside and Dodger pitching is excellent. This may be the weak, the weakest lineup, not worse, weakest, <laughs> small distinction, the weakest lineup ever to take the field for a World Series game. Now, what I don't know is that the Dodgers have gone back into the clubhouse before the national anthem <laughs> and Lasorda is watching and the, the TP's on in the clubhouse. And Tommy, you know, who loved to get this kind of stuff going, yes, look at that. Did. Even F and Costas doesn't think we have a chance. <laughs> well, kill him, screw him, whatever they're saying, they're chanting according to Lasorda. So now I, I finished the pregame. I'm on the first base side in front of the visitors dugout and they start to play the anthem. So I don't want to be disrespectful. So I fall at, in line at the end of the Dodgers line and Hershiser is not going to pitch it the next night as his cap over his heart. And he looks down at me like this and he goes, you really got the guys going in there. I don't even know what he's talking about. Lasorda had turned it into a rallying cry. So now in game four, Lasorda actually was named the MVP of the game by the NBC people because he did everything. He gives Mike Davis the hit sign on three, and oh, he hits a home run. He pulls a squeeze play. He's doing everything. He, he outmanages Tony Larusa in the game. The Dodgers go up 3-1. They got Hershiser the next day, and they win the World Series. So Marv Albert interviews uh, Lasorda after the game, and the first words out of Lasorda's mouth was, first of all, the MVP should be Bob Costas. So now there's no way you undo this in the court of public opinion. So there are still perfectly reasonable, otherwise reasonable Dodger fans who think to this day, that I hated their team and Lasorda turned it to their advantage. So if that's what you want to think, go ahead and think. <laughs> that 88 World Series, oh my goodness. Uh, I'm an Ace fan, as you know, so that bulletin board material definitely gave them that, but it made for great drama, obviously. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and as a player, 
yes, we, we, we do like to, sometimes you need to be turned on. You need something to fire you up. You need something outside. Look, they were not the better team over the course of any series, except for that one. A's hands down for the reasons you gave, but man, for this, you know, for the game itself, it worked out great. Gibson hitting the home runoff for Eckersley and just the way they went about their business. They knew they couldn't beat the A's, but Tommy did his thing and mm-hmm. gave them the fuel they needed just by you simply stating a fact. Like that lineup right. is just not that good. Well, and that team beat two teams that were clearly superior to that. Yes. You know, Ron, I think the, the Mets only won one game uh, head-to-head during the regular season. Uh, the, the Dodgers only won one game head-to-head yeah. from the Mets during the regular season. So they beat a superior team in the LCS. There was no wild card. Then. And a superior team in the World Series. And I think that Oakland team, which went to the World Series three straight years but only won one, is comparable to Earl Weaver's Orioles of the late 60s and early 70s, who also went to three straight World Series. And they would be ranked with the Cincinnati Reds of the mid-70s, and the A's who immediately followed them who won three straight World Series, but they lost two of the three. They lost to the Miracle Mets in 69. They did beat the Orioles, uh, I'm sorry, the Reds in 70. And then in 71, they're up on the Pirates three games to one, and somehow that slips away. So those, those are two great teams whose places in history are altered by a handful of games in October. You know, Bob, the first analyst... Um, that I ever remember as kind of a kid listening to games where I peaked up when he spoke, uh, was Tony Kubek. And I know you mm-hmm. worked with Tony, um, give us some stories about what it was like to work with Tony and, and, uh, how good he was. You know, I just talked to Tony yesterday cause I saw a screening over the weekend of the Yogi Berra mm-hmm. documentary, which is very good. It ain't mm-hmm. over. Uh, and Tony was interviewed for it. And I was letting him know how much I appreciate it. He's in his mid eighties. Now he still looks and, and sounds great. Uh, he had as much integrity as anyone I've ever worked with. Um, he wasn't a harshly critical guy. He wasn't a shoot from the hip guy, but he was going to tell you what he thought. Um, he didn't want to call attention to himself. Like he wouldn't do commercials. He didn't want to do appearances apart from doing the games. He was a pure baseball guy and he impressed. I learned more from him, if only because it was so early in my career, he impressed certain things upon me. Yeah. You want to talk to the managers, but the scouts and the coaches have more time. You'll get stuff from the coaches and from the bullpen catcher and from sit on Friday before the Saturday game of the week, sit behind the plate with scouts and pick up stuff from them. And he was always great about giving credit to the baseball people who didn't get credit, to the scouts, mm. to the groundskeepers, to some, to some guy he played with, you know, who was just a reserve on those great Yankee teams. Um, so, and, and he really paved the way for me. I owe him more to him than anyone else I've worked with, even though I've worked with a lot of great people, because he was already established as, you know, he played on all those Yankee pennant winners. And then he worked with Kurt Gowdy and Joe Garagiola before Vin Scully came to NBC. So they paired him with Joe and me, like at age 30, I get, I look like I was 15. I get (laughs) Tony Kubek, you know, so that elevated me right away. But basically, figuratively, he draped an arm around my shoulder and said to everybody, this kid's okay with me. And so he should be okay with you, you know? So all the grizzled old baseball guys, they accepted me because Tony did. So that was really helpful for me. Wow. You know, and I consider um, 
uh, the goat of our business is Tim McCarver. I know is mm -hmm. a good friend of yours and, and, uh, maybe you can reflect on Timmy. You know, Tim had so many great things going for him. You know, he was a, a well-read guy. So his frame of reference went beyond baseball. Now he wasn't quoting Shakespeare, but sometimes something would come up and he could include it, or he'd have a turn of phrase or a reference that just added a little flavor to it. Plus his observations were so often right on the money. Uh, he's, he's had a couple in your series in, um, 88, uh, the Dodgers lost the first game behind Hershiser who pitched brilliantly, but your Mets, as you remember, rallied in the ninth. And he says, John Shelby's playing too deep in center field. And I, I don't know, it was Kevin McReynolds, whoever it was, then dumps a little looper right in front of him and it comes true. Yeah. In the 2001 World Series, game seven, the Yankees have to pull the infield in in the bottom of the ninth. Rivera's on the mound. And he says, the one drawback here is that with the cutter, you get a lot of broken bats and you got a, little, a lot of weak loopers that might drop over a drawn in infield. The one problem is Rivera throws inside the left-handers and left-handers get a lot of broken bat hits in the shallow outfield. That's exactly what happened. Gonzalez hit a ball that if the infield is a normal alignment, I could have caught it. Derek Jeter would have put it right in his pocket, but it was hopelessly over his head and that's the way the World Series ended. So it's one thing to analyze a play that's already happened, but he was a first guesser and he was often right. So, um, here's, here's something I've, I've always wondered because, you know, guys like yourself, big names as, as a kid, watch you growing up, you seem bigger than the game. How do you, for lack of a better word, shrink yourself just to become part of what's happening? Although you know your status, mm -hmm. um, you know how people perceive the games that you call and what they want to hear from from you. Um, how do you, you know, take yourself and just assimilate into what's going on and not be this big person outside of the game that people may even consider times bigger than the game? Yeah, you know, you can't control how people perceive you. But if you have any ability at all, plus if you've been around for a while, so people have associated you with big events that they remember. And if you have a style, not a shtick. People with a shtick are trying to impose themselves on something. But anyone who's any good has a style. Vin Scully had a style. Jack Buck had a style. Al Michaels has a style. Um, it doesn't have to be bigger than the game, but you know they're there. And the network wouldn't want you, and fans wouldn't recognize you. No one's universally popular, but if, in general, you weren't perceived favorably, and if your presence didn't make People think on a national basis, well, this is a big game because Al Michaels is there or Joe Buck is there. That's part of the package. That's why uh, ESPN has paid Joe Buck and Troy Aikman what they're going to pay um, and why Mike Tirico and Jim Nance and whomever else uh, have the standing that they do. But and, and also when you call upon your frame of reference, that doesn't mean you're making it about yourself. I wanted to hear Vin Scully say. You know, this reminds me of something Jackie Robinson told me once. Well, now I want to hear that. You know, that isn't Vin making it just because Vin's part of the story. He's earned that. He knows that, you know? Um, so if you've been around long enough and you've paid any attention, then you have something to offer the audience. And even if in some small way you're part of the story you're telling or the observation you're making, I think people should understand what the real intention of that is.
you know, Bob, uh, I remember so many games that you've done, but the first one I really remember when I had become a professional, been drafted, was the game you did in Wrigley Field mm-hmm. of Cubs, Sandberg, the whole thing. Um, is that the greatest game you ever did or, or is another one? It's the greatest regular season game yeah. for sure. And, you know, there are other games, probably if you kept track of every game over the next month, there would be a game or two that matched up to that. The Mets played a game in San Francisco about a month ago. That was just so crazy. But the difference is that this was the game of the week when the game of the week meant something, when you didn't have the ability to watch any game or highlights of every game to your heart's content on the internet, on the MLB network, on regional outlets. The game of the week then had primacy. The game of the week on a Saturday afternoon would get a rating equal to some hit primetime programs. Um, and if you lived in a non-baseball town, that was the only game you could see all week. And it usually featured good teams. Plus it was Wrigley Field against the Cardinals, a perfect idyllic setting, no lights yet at Wrigley Field. So every game was a day game. And it's the signature game of a Hall of Fame player's career. Sandberg hitting two last-ditch homers off another future Hall of Famer, Bruce Suter. Everything about it was so classic that it has a name. When you say the Sandberg game, people know what you're talking about. His last time up, Sandberg homered to tie it at nine in the ninth. He's tying run at the plate now in the tenth. The Cubs, who trailed 7-1, 9-3, they come back and win at 12-11. Can't remember the last time I saw a better one. The only other game I can think of that's like that is the Pine Tar game, because George Brent, <laughs> Brett, right. Berserk, or maybe want another one, the Rick Camp game. But people don't always call that game, that 18 or 19 inning game or whatever it was uh, between the Mets and the Braves when the 4th of July spilled over into the 5th of July. That's right. um, and Rick Camp hit the home run with the only home run he ever hit because there were nobody left on the bench. I mean, that was insane, but not as many people call it the Rick camp game is called the Brett thing, pine tower and the Sandberg thing, the Sandberg game. But you know, that's an example though, Jimmy, of what you were talking about before Tony Kubek and I did the game. It's a national mm-hmm. broadcast. Um, you know, it was a good broadcast, but I absolutely understand, um, cub fans who say, I want to hear how Harry Carey called that. And it's knocking around on YouTube somewhere because Harry wasn't on television that day because NBC had the exclusivity. So he did the whole game on radio. So of course you want to hear Harry. He's going right. nuts. He's, just, he's going as nuts as the guy in the bleachers. I'm going semi-nuts. Because, because it's a national broadcast. So Bob, when you're in the booth and you have to be critical or your partner has to be critical, is there any place you can't go? No, I think as long as you're well-informed and respectful, everybody differs in what their approach is. But my feeling is this, I've always been more outspoken about issues in the game than criticizing individuals. The worst player in baseball is in the 99.999 percentile of baseball players, you know, uh, the worst manager, 
that the fan sits at home and says that dummy, blah, blah. <laughs> if you put the fan there, the guy would plot his pants by the second in it. <laughs> it just has no real appreciation of everything that's going on and going into it, even if the manager is imperfect. So what I would do when it comes to individuals, I would more make an observation. You know, if I had been doing the game where uh, La Russa ordered an intentional walk to yeah. Trey Turner with a one-two count and Max Muncy is on deck, I would have said, let's say Ronnie's sitting next to me, Ron, that's an unorthodox move. And then Ron would make his comment. Yes. And then I would say, on the other hand, it's lefty-lefty and Muncy is not hitting lefties well at all at this point. Still an unorthodox move and Tony's going to hear about it, especially if this backfires. And then when Muncy gets a three-run homer, it damn sure backfired. But there's a way to do that. And the way to do that is not the talk radio way where everybody, mm -hmm. you know, is at a, a level of high decibels about every damn thing. Oh, LaRusso's an idiot. He's got to be fired. I wouldn't do that, not just because it would get me in hot water and lose me access and respect from the people I cover. I wouldn't do it because it's not right. It's, it's stupid. It's you know, you have to have some proportion and context to the way you do it. But that doesn't mean you're never critical. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. I try to preface if I have to be critical by saying I made that mistake myself. This is how I stopped making that mistake, you know, something like that. So, yeah, that's right. There's a way yeah. to do it respectfully and gently and still get your point across. And I, I'm, I'm thankful to have you today, Bob and Ron. I've learned so much. Uh, there are questions that I didn't have to answer because as usual, you tell the story and we just get locked in and we're just listening to your smooth voice. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause I, I can think of times where yes, you want there to be more criticism, but you in the booth or whoever's in the booth, you can't do that. You can't personally go after guys and no. you've, I've watched you do it. You call the situation for what it is and then you let it unfold and then you go on with your job. But let me give you one example. It just pops into my head here. I was doing the 2000 all-star game with the late, great Joe Morgan. Mm. And the game happened to be in Atlanta. And we all knew by then that something was up in baseball with steroids and PEDs. And the way I went about it was to take the 10 best years of Hank Aaron's career. We're in Atlanta, not the 10 best consecutive, but the 10 best, whatever it was out of his 20 plus year career and average them for home runs, for RBIs, for slugging percentage. And there were about 22 guys in that game between the American and National League squads combined who were on pace to exceed those numbers in the 2000 season. So my point was that, look, I don't think there's two guys, let alone 22 guys here, better than Hank Aaron, but everything takes place in a context. And the context of Major League Baseball, uh, the game has been ripped from its historical moorings. And so you have to take all of this with a grain of salt. Yeah. And I think I also pointed out that after World War II, there had been three seasons where guys had slugged over 700. Once each, Musial, Mantle, yeah. Ted Williams. Okay, you're talking about elite Mount Rushmore guys. And there were like seven guys in that game that at the All-Star break were slugging over 700. And then I must say that there was an opening and I didn't let it pass. Joe said, well, the ball may be juiced. And I couldn't resist. And I said, not as much as some of the players. <laughs> and Don, Fee that's all I said. But I wouldn't have said it if he hadn't opened that door. But the way, the point I'm making is the way I was getting a reasonable thought across, which was about the state of baseball in a well-watched 
game at midseason, the All-Star game, which still then got very high ratings. I was making a general point without criticizing or accusing anybody else. But when Joe said what he said, and then I said, not as much as some of the players, Don Fear called me the next day and said, we got to have lunch. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was dressing me down at lunch uh, a few days later. But I was like, hey, Don, you know what's going right. on. Come on. You know, honesty. Uh, we, everyone appreciates you, Bob, because you're one of the few, you and Joe, that really addressed it. And I know um, as far as the criticism in the booth, I always, always could try to go by this mantra. I used to play, can't play anymore. That helps. You know, Jimmy, I don't want to, um, I want to ask Bob a couple more questions. One, uh, not about the state of game, Bob, but maybe the state of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. Um, you talked about when the game of the week was the most important thing you had the Monday night, uh, there was a Monday night game as well. Um, but I was just wondering, where do you think the state of broadcasting is going to be? You know, baseball is now aligned with Amazon, uh, Apple TV. Um, Peacock, NBC, um, where do you think it's going to end or not end? Well, if we're just talking about baseball, I have a concern. And I think this also applies to the NBA. It's become largely a local and on a national basis, a cable sport. The revenue is undeniable, but the casual fan is not as familiar with even the best teams and the best players. The NFL is bulletproof for a number of reasons, but every consequential NFL game is essentially on network television. So if you're a Tampa Bay fan, by the time you played five or six games, you know who Joe Burrow is because all the highlights, if you're watching the Buccaneers, all the highlights include the Bengals highlights. And then once a team gets to the playoffs, they're on the biggest stage uh, and people become familiar with that team. You know, on a regional basis, sure. The Cardinals are going to get huge ratings throughout the summer uh, regionally in St. Louis or around St. Louis. And the Red Sox, the same on Nesson and the Yankees on Yes and the Mets on SNY. Yes. But does the casual fan in Tacoma know anything about any team except the Mariners? The casual fan. And I think the same thing is true with the NBA. There's a lot of differences and you can factor in my bias, but... In the 80s, the NBA is on CBS, and you've got Larry Bird and Magic Johnson going at it on CBS. And on, in the 90s, the NBA is on NBC. And it isn't just that Michael Jordan and the Bulls are on primetime network television, but the promos are on Friends and ER and Seinfeld, uh, the Today Show, the Tonight Show, Letterman, Johnny Carson. It's just more a part of the casual fans' conversation. Whereas now, Steph Curry is doing incredible things. Yeah, the finals are on ABC. But leading up to it, it's all either on ESPN or it's on TBS. And it's not a commentary on how good a job they do. They do a really good job producing and broadcasting the games. But it's just not as widely available. Maybe Mm. Derek Jeter is the last baseball star because all the important games were either on NBC or, or Fox or ABC. Uh, at that time, uh, and the Yankees were so successful. Maybe Derek Jeter is the last baseball player who is truly a national figure. You know, the way I put it is no little old lady in Omaha has ever said, you know, Mildred, I can't play bridge with you tonight because I have to watch LeBron James. That's not LeBron's fault. 
a million such little old ladies said that about Michael Jordan. And those little old ladies also knew who Derek Jeter was. I'm not so sure that they know who Aaron Judge is. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. in New York, they do. Uh, and avid fans do who watch the MLB network. But I'm not sure about the casual fan. And that is so true. That That is so true. So true. Here's, a, here's what happens. You know, you ask me a question. You got 10 questions, but you can only get through about five, me, because I, 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 I give you. I give you a term paper. I give you a paragraph. I give you a term. And I love it. You know, you know what I'm you know, sticking, Bob, is that I'm always asked the difference between regional and national. And I always say this, um, the regional, you're kind of reciting a six-month novella about your team. And in the postseason national games, you are a caretaker of baseball history. Yes. Yeah. And also putting that season and how these teams got there into some kind of context. You know, I always am aware of the fact that if I'm doing the Padres against the Dodgers, Don Orsillo in the Padre booth and Mark Grant, they know more about the Padres than I could possibly know, no matter how diligently I prepare. Somebody gets brushed back and I may not be aware that three weeks ago, the same two guys went at it. But they were there. They saw it. They retain it. So I, I can never match that. But my job is to give an overview mm. to the person who is not the avid Padres fan. In the 90s, when we would do the LCS or the World Series, sometimes you'd hear from local fans, um, Keith Lockhart comes up for the Braves. And or everybody knows who Chipper Jones is. But the guy in, in Toledo doesn't know who Keith Lockhart is. So you give a brief capsule on Keith Lockhart. And the fan in Atlanta says, shut up, dummy. I know that. That's right, because you watched 162 games. <laughs> Keith, uh, Keith is owed his due. So, Bob, thank you for being un- unwritten. But Jimmy Rollins and Ron Darling, you're the best. And I'll see you in the booth soon. Great to see you guys. See ya. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate you, brother. Well, one of the things we learned about the show from Bob Costas, from Jimmy Rollins and myself, is that it's all right to criticize players on the air, but be smart about it. Use some good language and make sure that uh, um, you're you're not attacking the player. You're kind of attacking the play. Uh, and that makes more sense. So unwritten rules, be kind. Use, use good words, use big words, whatever you have to do. Unwritten, <laughs> Jimmy Rollins. Ron Darling. It's great having Bob Costas. See you next time. Unwritten is a production of Odyssey and Major League Baseball. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen of Odyssey with Ian Kay of Major League Baseball. Lena Glazer is the executive producer of 2400 Sports at Odyssey. Jody Avergan and Nick Trotta of MLB are executive producers. Special thanks to everyone at Major League Baseball and Odyssey who helped make this show happen. If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating or a review in your podcaster player of choice. Or just tell someone about the show. For Jimmy Rollins, I'm Ron Darling. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon with more on baseball's unwritten rules.